Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Nicole Wamsley. Nicole has championed the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative, and got it into the city of Lodi's police department. She is also the state representative for the program. So, Nicole, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here today. So, I'd like to begin at kind of to tell our listeners just a little bit about your background. Um, I was born, um, my mom was an addict. And I was adopted by a Christian family um, in Summit County Children's Services. I was raised in Rutstown uh, my entire life on the farm. You know, my parents did everything they could to prevent me from becoming my mother. Um, so I was in counseling at an early age. I really didn't know why I was in counseling. Um, I had a huge disconnection with other people. Um, so I never really understood. And as I went through school... I got picked on and bullied a lot, and the only place I felt like I fit in were with the ones who did drugs. Um, and at that age, we were only smoking weed. And when I turned, so eight, what age? If I could jump in, what age did you start then? Um, sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. And um, when I turned eighteen, I went to rehab for the marijuana at the time. Um, and then I left unsuccessfully completing it, um, became addicted to meth. And on my 19th birthday, I found out I was pregnant and I stopped all use of drugs. Um, I gave birth to my daughter. She's perfectly healthy. And I tried to do the right thing because society taught me that I should be married and all this. So I got into a bad relationship. And during that time... With I, the father of your child? No, hmm. no. Um, at the time I was diagnosed with a medical condition and I was put on Vicodin and the Vicodin like changed something in, inside me that made me feel comfortable with myself and that hole seemed to be filled, but I was still miserable in my relationship that ended violently. Um, my parents knew that I was going, um, in a dark place and I didn't want to take my child with me. Um, so she was about a year and a half when I gave custody to my parents, and I thought that I failed um, in life. So I started abusing my pain pills. 
The doctor took me off my pain pills and didn't educate me about the withdrawals. Um, Dare and the school never educated us about this. So, so let me jump in. How did he take you off of your pain pills? They just stopped prescribing. Just Okay. Yeah. No more prescription. Yeah, there like wasn't any weaning you I down. I had a surgery. Here's the last prescription. And that's that cold and I, turkey. And I was done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I started getting sick and one of my friends is like, oh, you're dope sick. I'm like, I don't know what that means. So he's like, well, I can get oxys, which was a couple steps up than what I was taking. And at the time, I justified it in my head that, I, well, I was prescribed pain pills. Maybe I could take them for a couple of days and I won't be sick. Well, a couple of days turned into a seven-year addiction. Um, I ended up going to heroin. When, seven years. So yeah. So take me through that. So what? how far out does that take you? You started at 16 on drugs and, and then your seven-year addiction. So how old are you then? Um, well, I kind of separate the opiate from the other stuff because yeah. I was clean for two years yeah. before okay. I did it. So gotcha. then I, when I relapsed, I went for seven years. Okay. So it was about 21, 21, 22 okay. um, when I got addicted to the opiates. Gotcha. And stayed addicted until you were... Yeah, 21. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so when I went to meet my drug dealer one day, he was out of oxys. And I'm like, I'm never going to do heroin. That's disgusting. Junkies do that. I'm not a junkie. I just snort pills. And he's like, well, I'll give you this bag for free. And then tomorrow, come back and I'll have your pill. And I'm like, all right. Well, I don't want to be sick. I never went back to pills. Um, you could buy a 50 bag of heroin that lasts you three days almost at the time. Um, when you were spending $50 on a pill that lasted a day. So it made more sense to go to heroin. Then the government kind of changed the oxys and then everyone went to heroin. I swore How never, did the government change the oxys? They, what do you mean by that They like took them off the market and made oh. it so you couldn't abuse them. So you couldn't crush proof? Was yeah, that what you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You okay. couldn't so, snort them so or shoot them. them or there shoot was like them. a yeah. huge chemistry to it. So everybody okay. just went straight to heroin. Okay. And were you shooting it this time? No, not yet. Okay. Um, for like six months, I continued to snort it. And one day it wasn't enough to make me not sick. And I watched somebody inject and I'm like, well, I want to just try it once. Um, I sold my soul and my morals, um, just to be honest. Um, it took, it like took my soul. I was incapable of emotions. Um, I do talk about Christmas day when my child was almost three holding onto my leg, not wanting me to leave. And I just looked down and couldn't feel anything and pulled her off me and ran out the door because the drug was more important than spending Christmas with my child. Mm, that's heartbreaking. Um, I just was gone. Like... My body was there, but I was gone mentally. I was arrested 18 times, incarcerated 496 days altogether. Wow. I spent 2,556 days getting high. I had a lot you of time that in jail. All. Boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're an analytic. Yeah. Huh. Well, okay. when you're trapped in a cell for 23 hours a day, you kind of start adding things up in your life and counting sure. the bricks in the wall. And Sure. So what next? Um, the justice system just kept releasing me. I never went to prison, though I should have. Um, they just kept letting me out to the same people, places, and things. And I couldn't get into treatment. And, and they taught me coping skills in one facility. But 
Why couldn't you get into treatment? Because the criteria was almost next impossible to get into. You had to call every day. You had to you had to be on that waiting list, and you had to have insurance. And it it just seemed like there was never a bed available when I would call. Um, sometimes nobody answered this particular place, so if they don't answer, your next call is your drug dealer. Hmm. Is and this they place answer. is the name of the place relevant in this discussion? Do you think or not? Um, not really, because it's happening no, but, all over. The, yeah, the, the hurdles that you have to get into treatment. There wasn't as many treatment centers as there is today when I was using. Hmm. Um, and at the time, this was in Youngstown, and it was the only facility um, that was I was having an issue because they had detox. There wasn't detox is the biggest problem, and, and that's what we lack in the state of Ohio. Um. So it's just I the justice system failed me. And my last time spent, I went to a place called Neocap, which is uh, one of Ohio's supposedly top treatment centers, except the only way to get into it is you have to be a convicted felon and you have to be sentenced there. Oh, where is it? Uh, Trumbull County, Warren. Hmm. Okay. Um, it's kind of like I always say it's a boot camp for your brain. Because they do tear you apart, the old stuff. But by the time they're done tearing you down and trying to reprogram you, your time's up and they release you. Hmm. Um, they didn't reintegrate me at all. They just released me to the same people, places, and things. Uh, how long was the program? Uh, four months. Four months. Okay. So when they released me, um, Mahoning County had indicted me on an older possession charge. So I went through the system, put on house arrest, and uh, I didn't know why I was bothering to stay clean. I was about nine months clean when I relapsed in March 2013. And I thought that I could just inject $5 worth of heroin because I knew my tolerance was down. And the disease tells you that you you know what you're doing. Like, I've done this a million times. I could control it. But it, I didn't buy heroin. I somebody gave me fentanyl instead, and I it burned every vein in my body. I it knew burned. Oh, it was what, painful. What? Like was fire going through. Wow. Uh, I knew I was dying. Um, this was different. I had prayed for my overdose death, like my entire addiction. You'd prayed to, yes. to die from yes. an overdose. Yes, every day. Uh. Um. But when it happened, that wasn't my prayer that day. And I just didn't, I really didn't want to die. But I had blacked out, some time went on, and the guy I was living with had called 911. When I came to, they were working on me, and I had weird fluid in my mouth. And um, they didn't arrest me or anything. I had to go to the hospital. They released me. And the next day, I turned myself into probation and asked them to put me in jail. And I was facing 18 plus 12 months, and I was willing to do every single day in prison because I, I was, I can't, I couldn't do it anymore. What is 18 18 plus, months. 18 uh, months plus an additional so be, 12? Yeah, so it would be 30 months okay. altogether. All right. Um, so I went before the judge. The judge's son actually died from a heroin overdose. His name was Judge Evans, and he was in Youngstown. Um, he basically said I was going to prison, um, but I had to come back for sentencing. So I read, I wrote him a letter, 
And I thanked him because when they put the shackles on me, it was the first time in my life I felt free. And I know that sounds crazy, but I knew like I, this was it. Like I didn't care what I had to do. I just wasn't going to do it high anymore. I so was, you were ready. I mean, you were I mentally prepared for this. You I were, didn't care. You, you were ready for your new life. Yeah. And if it was in prison, then that's where I needed to be. Because for the longest time, like, oh, I can't go to prison because of my daughter. But I didn't care about my daughter and my addiction. At least if I'm in prison, then I'm alive and my daughter will still have her mother. And eventually I'll get out and reconnect with her. Um, He ended up sentencing me to CCA, Community Corrections Association in Youngstown. They did the best job. They taught me how to manage my money. They helped me get a job. They built me up. They showed me love. They showed me that I could do it. They helped me get a job, my own place. Um, And that's why I became as successful as I am today because of that facility and the case manager and the job director. They're the ones who had the hope put in me to do what we do. Um, so I've stayed clean on March 15th, 2013 as the first day without heroin for the rest of my life. Wow. So. That's tremendous. So that takes us to the next chapter in your life. Right. So tell us about that. I wanted to move on with my life and never talk about heroin and pretend I wasn't a heroin addict and just be a normal society member. Um, however, my friends were dying and... Their sisters were dying and their brothers were and their friends. And I was watching the overdose rate rise, which is nothing compared to what it is now a year ago. And I sat around and I'm like, why? Why isn't the government coming for it? Why doesn't somebody do something? And then I just decided that maybe I could be somebody and try to do something. Uh, I was online and saw Chief Campanello uh, launch this program, Perry in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And I reached out to him, not thinking he'd respond, but I sent him a speech of an event we did and that he inspired me to bring it to Ohio. He responded. uh, He flew out, was my guest speaker in Youngstown at an event. And then he flew me out and trained me at his police department. And then I went (laughs) working minimum wage for Hilton Hotels. I was spending the rest of my free time going to police departments and letting them know there's a tool, there's a there's a program that takes out the committing crime of addiction. And if this was available seven years ago, would I have gotten clean? I don't know. I can't say that. But I knew that if there's an option that somebody can turn themselves in and not go to prison or jail, I want somebody to have that chance that I didn't have. So now let's describe that program for our listeners. How's the program work? Exactly. So the police department signs up and basically the ones that sign up are the ones that are tired of arresting addicts and want to treat them like it's a disease, not like it's a crime. Yeah. The departments that are motivated are just sick and tired of this. Yeah. Right? They're, okay. they're tired. They're spending hours on the same paperwork for the same addict over and over again. Yeah. So this allows them to bring their drugs and their needles in, um, not to the one in Medina County, though the prosecutor is against it. So, but we allow them to turn themselves in. We just don't let them dispose of their drugs. Oh, so you modify it based upon the community and the requirements right. for of the exactly. community and their level of acceptance. That's great. So you can come in. Um, we don't have it down like Gloucester has it, where they could place them that day. 
um, our wait can be anywhere from 24 hours to 72 hours. Mm. And it is quicker than most of the other programs. Um, some days I can send you out. Our, our biggest problem is detox. So when they come in, we do an intake on them. If they have insurance, we find them appropriate care. If they don't have income or insurance, we work with facilities that are partnered with Perry that donate scholarships per however many paid clients they have, they'll donate a scholarship to us. Okay. So any addict, when they've reached that point where they're, they really are motivated to get clean, they can go to the police headquarters there Correct. in Lodi and turn themselves in with their paraphernalia, no needles in that case, right. but everything else, give them the drugs and say, uh, I'm done with this. I need your help. Correct. And then from there, the police department takes them under their wing. Yes. And we don't just send them to the rehab. I'm invested and the volunteers are invested in them from the day they leave during their process. And when they're about to come back, we get them transitioned, sober living, help them get a job. We coach them. We get them into, we have a thing called rebel recovery where it's long-term recovery. We are not 12 steps and we're not anonymous but we get them into uh, like community community service, like cleaning up the streets and horseback riding, fishing, you know, doing sober activities. And they just build each other up. And, um, yeah. So why do you make a point of saying we're not 12-step and we're not anonymous? Because there are guidelines to the anonymous programs that, um, might prohibit us from coming out to the public. And I, those programs are great. I mean, they work wonders. Um, they, they didn't work for me. Um, I'm not anonymous and I want to show the world that we do recover. Um, but I, I want people to know when they come to our meetings that we're not affiliated with them. Okay. But we do we we follow the twelve steps, but it's that's not what we are. Gotcha. All right. So in your program, is there any leaning one way or the other of abstinence or MAT? You know, because oftentimes you, you you have to choose, you have to pick and choose there. And so, so many of the twelve steps programs are abstinence based, and they won't allow anybody on medication assisted treatment to come into their program. I, I understand because in those. 12 steps, you're not clean if you're on those. That's what they say. Yeah, you're trading one, one habit for another. Yeah. And they're both bad in their right. estimation. I caused so much controversy with this, but I disagree with medical assisted treatment over the counter. Like, not over the counter, but outpatient. Um, if it keeps somebody off of shooting heroin, that's great. But I was on it. I tried it for six months. And... I got addicted to my Suboxone, then I started abusing them, and then when I went to get off of it, it was worse withdrawal than heroin. It wow. was more painful. I believe if it's in a controlled environment, like even like when you go to jail, they should have a detox pod where they slowly taper you off, or in mm -hmm. rehab, they slowly taper you off. But as far as long term, I get why the 12-step things, you're not clean because you're still on something to keep you from getting high. Yeah. But I'm open to anything as long as it keeps the needle out of there. So, Nicole, have you ever tried Vivitrol then? 
They, I have not, they did not have that available when I was an addict. This is something fairly new. Um, but I do, I've read on it and I work with a lot of addicts who take it and it's amazing. And I completely back the Vivitrol shot. Yeah, the results have been just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, from what I've been exposed to so far. So, okay. Um, so... How come you've become so passionate about the Perry program that you're, you know, the state representative for? What's made you, other than the obvious, um, tell me a little bit more about your passion for that program. I mean, you were working spare in your free time promoting that, unpaid. Right. No one came for me. No one came for me in my addiction. Society helped keep me sick. Nobody showed me there was hope or light or love. I never thought I could be anything more than a junkie. Um, I believe that given the opportunity and building the addict up during their recovery and giving them the skills, they can successfully recover from it. Um, I just want to go for the ones that People don't want to make it. Like, for example, cops said I was a waste and I should just die. And nobody really wanted to put in any effort. Someone told you that. The oh, police yeah. told you that. I won't say which. Sure. But they, I was really out of control. And they dealt with me. And I was disrespectful to them. So, of course, they're just like, she's never going to change. She's a waste. Um, so it's kind of ironic that now I work, you work with them. With them. And, and the reason being now is when I go to roll call training and talk to them, I'm like, you know what it's like to have people want to kill you or want you dead. Now you know how we feel when someone's like, oh, why Narcan them? Let them thin out the herd. Mm-hmm. I hate that expression. I do too. Because if, if somebody was addicted to smoking, we told you you would get cancer if you smoked that. Now we're not going to treat you because you haven't. We told you not to do that. Would we not treat them? No. The human thing to do is take care of each other. So why is addiction different? Yeah. Um, you've successfully gotten this into several communities. Yes. So where have you gotten it into in the state? All right. So we have Wellington and Lorraine, Newark. In Licking County, Olmstead Township and Berea are new to the family. They're in Hur- or Cuyahoga County. Then we have Willard and Plymouth in Huron County. Um, I think. And you've Lo- gone throughout. You've, you've met with people throughout the state. Yeah. Over this, uh, all with all the police Ohio. forces throughout the state. Is that right? Yes. Wow. We That's do have one police department that isn't officially signed up. Um, however, one of his officers, before anybody signed up, Officer Miller, Ritman PD, he joined like my team, and he pushed me to bring it to Ohio. Um, they might join. They had like a switch out with chiefs, so I didn't want to throw that on them hmm. until he was settled into his new position, but... Yeah, they there are a lot of officers um, who love this. It's a change. It's a different. It's a different mindset for them. Instead of arresting, now we want you to help us. And a lot of them are embracing it. And it's a way out of Groundhog Day. Let's yeah. face it for them, right? Yes. Um, so let's talk about the hurdles that you had to overcome 
to land these programs in these various get the you know various communities to embrace them. There had to be a lot of them. Um, the first one was who I was. So your background, yeah, your, your past, yeah. Um, a lot of the places really didn't take me serious. You know, I'm just another addict trying to shove a program down their throat. Um, once we got, once Lodi joined and people started realizing I'm not that addict, um, I started getting more respect and leeway working all, all across the board. Um, our second obstacle was the prosecutor in Medina who didn't feel comfortable with us getting rid of the drugs and the needles um, without prosecution. That was our biggest hurdle. Um, so we worked around it to where we just wouldn't advertise that we would get rid of your drugs. Um, it's the only county that won't allow that. All the other county prosecutors are on board, especially the one in Cuyahoga County is um, all for it. Um Okay. Those are the biggest hurdles. Those were the biggest. Yeah, those ones. were some big ones. Yeah. Um, and and good for you and the team uh, associated with the program because you exercised the flexibility that you needed to to be smart to get it in, get it adopted in yes. the communities where that that just makes perfect sense. So next, let's talk about the metrics that are used to measure the effectiveness of this program. Okay. Are there any? Um, since it's fairly new and we've been operating for six, seven months, um, I mean, I keep track with the chief of Lodi and we'll go through and I mean, I call up and see where they're at. If they're, we have them in binders, like if they've relapsed or if we couldn't place them or if they're still in recovery. Um, right now we're, we've placed 670 and 31 remain in recovery five relapses, and seven are in treatment. The overall recovery rate United States-wide with this program is 70% and a 30% relapse rate. Put that in perspective for us. Is that good? Um, yes. They say only 1% heroin addicts recover. 1%. So uh, good doesn't do it justice. Right. I mean, it's phenomenal. Yes. The stats. Yes. That's, that, that is very, very encouraging. Yeah. That's for sure. That's great. And you have to feel really good about that because you are making a difference. I was just hoping for at least one. You yeah. know, like it, it, you could plant the seeds in a thousand addicts, but even if just one may get, that's one life, one family that has their kid back. Um, it, it is, and, it, and it's the whole turning their self in. They're not being forced in recovery. Their parents aren't forcing them into it. The ones that are willing to come to the one people we don't like in our addiction shows the desperation and level of dedication. And that's why I believe in it because when it was my turn, I turned myself in knowing I wasn't going to get treatment. That's how desperate I was. So, Nicole... As a uh, recovering addict, what key piece of advice do you have for someone who's looking for help? Look for it like you are looking for your drugs. And I tell all the addicts that, and you have to want it as much as you wanted to get high so you would feel normal, not even to get high. Um, just reach out. There are resources. We're here. We do recover. Um, it's possible. And a lot of people think that when they relapse, that's it, it's over. 
relapse, it, it's, it's not about how many times you fall down. It's about how long it takes for you to get up. And when you relapse, you come back and let's figure out why. What made, what triggered you to go back out? And I just think together, like, we can do this. Like, we can help them stay in recovery. I've heard it be said several times, actually, that relapse is part of recovery. That was something that as a parent helping my son, trying to help him with his, his battle, Sam's battle with heroin addiction, um, we viewed his relapses as failures. Oh, no. That's not what they are. Yeah, it took me a while to grasp that. And some people will argue that it's not part of recovery, but it happens. It's a disease and it, you relapse, you remain in recovery like we talked about um, and figure out what made you go back. But they're not failures. And that's what's for me when I, I was a chronic relapser for seven years. And I thought I took them as failures every time I relapsed instead of getting up and finding out why and fixing it. And also finding out how far. You, you took those steps and you started into recovery and you got some distance. Right. So start there yeah. with what you accomplished. And keep going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what else would you like to share with our listeners about the challenges that are faced in long-term recovery? My challenges were not what people would think, like um, like triggers. I don't see a needle and want to use. My triggers were accepting love, um, accepting my self-worth, that I was worth something. Um, just emotions were triggers and hard for me. The minute I'd feel love, I'd want to numb it and get high and escape because I I told myself love is weakness and I wasn't weak and I would rather get high than be in love. And that was a long battle, probably for the first two years. I actually told maybe like six months ago when I had to break through through counseling. But emotions were will forever be an issue. Um, I do suffer PTSD and insomnia um, from my drug use. And, you know, addicts put themselves in bad places to see things happen. Um, but my PTSD, the nightmares are always using dreams. Um, and that that's probably will be forever long term. Sleeping is out of the question. Like how we used to sleep when we were on drugs. Like it's going to take years before... I can have a normal sleeping pattern. Is this typical of other recovering uh, addicts? Yeah, most of them that I work with. Hmm. I was unaware. I've tried um, medication, but I, I'm an addict and I don't want to try and sure. mess with anything else. Yeah, that's, that's smart. Yeah. Um, Nicole, thank you. You're welcome. Any final words for our listeners? Don't give up. Very good. Apropos. Okay, and this is a less publicized initiative that you're working on. Correct. And this would be like a call to action for Akron, Ohio. Correct. So let's talk about that. 
I fully believe there's more that can be done with the epidemic and the high overdose rates. As I explained earlier, if this was a disease like Ebola or anything else, our government would come in, they would open up hospitals, and they would treat them. We are in a state of crisis with the heroin or the carfentanil, and I believe our hospitals should do an emergency detox and treat the addicts get them detoxed off of it, and help, and then we can come in and help place them in inpatient treatment. So you're calling on the area hospitals in Akron right. to get on board and get uh, volunteer to, to detox, open their detox facilities so that you can get people right in. Right. Okay. What's next? Um, I believe Akron Police Department should carry Narcan. They do not um, carry it. I understand they do have a good response rate with their fire departments and medics. Um, however, I feel all police departments should carry it. Our chief of our initiative offered to supply them with 500 doses of the double strength Narcan, um, and they are still not going to carry it. So for the benefit of our listeners, Narcan is, I think most people know, but... I'll let you explain what it does. It, rever it reverses overdoses. And right now, with the fentanyl and carfentanil, some of the police officers that I work with are using up to six doses per addict. Six doses? Correct. Wow. Huh. And you know, in your average Dawn kit, I believe they come with two doses. Right. So, okay. So, why, why don't they carry? Why doesn't the Akron police carry the Narcan? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> You'll have to ask them. I mean, it saves lives, hands it does. down. It's, it's an extra tool. It's like a skill. Like you know how to do CPR. What if you What if you have multiple overdoses? Because they're saying up to 10 to 17 overdoses a day. What if the medic can't get there and the police officer's first response and he can't Narcan them and he has to wait and they die in that meantime? Someone goes into detox, the hospitals. Let's just say, let's go back to your first uh, part of this initiative. The hospitals say, yeah, okay, we're going to open up our doors. We're going to offer more the capacity for you for detox. After the person gets into detox, then what as far as treatment is concerned? What do you propose? Um, not just my services or our initiative, but all the addiction services to come out and start, you know, doing their intake and finding beds for them not just in Ohio, but wherever they can get them. There are resources, but we have to work together to get people there. Well, I can see that you're very passionate about that. And, and certainly something has to be done because it's uh, the epidemic is getting worse, not right. better here in, in our local community in particular. Okay, outstanding. Well, um, once again, I applaud you Thank for you. the fine work that you're doing on both initiatives. And really, not only the uh, specific um, headway that you're making on those initiatives, but also something that isn't necessarily recognized, and that is your efforts by doing that, you help to remove just a little bit at a time the stigma associated with this. Stigma is still out there. Yes. But you're, you're doing more than your part to help remove that, which is terrific. Thank you. We've been visiting today with Nicole Wamsley. Nicole is uh, very passionate about um, supporting the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative. 
She's the state representative for them, and she's also uh, the catalyst behind the call to action for Akron. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Okay. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.